Welcome to Speaking Candidly with Candace, your voice for mental health and well-being. I'm your host, Candace Schoner, and I hope over the next half hour, you will be engaged, enlightened, and inspired to live your best life. My guest today is Anthony Davis, an author and life coach who is living proof of the power of resiliency after surviving two strokes in a toxic work environment for 20 years. Welcome, Anthony, to the podcast. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I know you weren't feeling very well yesterday, so I really appreciate you being here today. And is it okay to call you Tony? Yes. Yeah, Tony's fine. I guess we're practicing resilience here, right? <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> would you briefly describe what you did for a living before you decided to become an author and a life coach? Uh, sure. Well, I'd started my military career in the Navy uh, way back. I was a rescue air crewman and a helicopter squadron. Later got out to join. Uh, as a civilian, I started a photography business for a while until I had a bad accident where I was rear-ended by an 18-wheeler. After uh, some physical rehab, I joined the Coast Guard where I stayed and retired. Uh, served on five different cutters, some in the Bering Sea in the winters and some crazy places. Went into law enforcement with them and uh, uh, somewhere along that time, I uh, uh, gained some stories that I've had and I thought, well, you know, I could share these. So that's how I started writing. What was your first book about? The first book I wrote was Terrorism in the Maritime Transportation System. Um, at the time when 9-11 happened, I was a maritime investigator. And we had a new commanding officer came in. I was down in Mobile, Alabama at the time. Uh, and he said, I want to set up an intelligence shop. And I'm the only guy in his whole command at the time that has, has spent time operationally doing counter drugs and migration and a variety of those things. So instantly I was the intelligence chief. I covered all of Alabama, parts of Mississippi and Florida. Um, and my book came because we shared the building with customs. We were across the street from the Bureau or the FBI, as most people know, and no one talked to one another. So I had started a, a report back then called the Homeland Security Report with 50 local law enforcement readers that eventually grew to about 200,000 readers. Um, I did that for 12 years on my own time and dime. And I felt that I needed to share some things uh, that were an open source or an unclassified that I could share to the community. And that's how that book started. Well, I'm so tempted to go another direction with this interview, but I'm going to stay on track. <laughs> it sounds like a really uh, stressful position, but fascinating one as well. It became very busy very quickly after 9-11. <laughs> and you obviously survived it. Yes. When did you decide to leave your job, career, or work with the government to actually start writing and become a life coach? Well, I'd, I'd, for a period of time, for the last decade, I was, I had a, a practice on the side and doing my, some government work. Um, and... Uh, after my last stroke last May, uh, well, I, I had to go. 
It, it's crazy how uh, some organizations will love you one minute, one minute, and suddenly you're an inconvenience the next. And that's pretty much how it became after I had my second stroke. So I retired, and uh, now I'm coaching people. I, I, I'm a board-certified hypnotherapist. Uh, I work with clients all over the nation. I'm starting to now see some in Canada. Uh, it was the right move. Sometimes you can be in a spot and you need to make a change. So as a life coach, I'm going to pick up on that. Sometimes you're in a spot and you need to make a life change. Mm -hmm. What do you tell your clients about doing just that? How do they identify when it's time to make a change? Well, you know, in coaching, a lot of that has to do with asking the right questions. And maybe my law enforcement time helped because I was a trained interviewer and interrogator. Uh, of course, you don't want to interrogate your clients, but it helps to be able to listen to what they're saying, to watch what they're saying. Now I'm, I'm seeing everybody by Zoom, but there was a time I had face-to-face -face here in an office. Uh, and determine what their issues are and then start asking questions to go down that way. Uh, one of the unique things about the work that I do and I have done for the last decade or so as a board certified hypnotherapist, I didn't want to be one of those typical hypnotist guys that does waiting and smoking. I wanted to make a difference. So I began working with uh, abuse clients and what I found is that if you don't take care of the underlying problems first, clients are going to go right back to what they know and what they've known for some, some of my clients for 30 years was abuse. Mm -hmm. So we, we would take care of the underlying issues in their lives and then move into coaching. Let me ask you about the hypnotherapy because mm -hmm. I have tried it myself and to break a bad habit of break chewing nails I was not able to go under. So how do you find a good hypnotherapist? And are there certain people that it just simply will not work for? There are, uh, you know, everyone is different. We, we have learning skills and we were, we're listeners or visual or sometimes my best clients are actually the ones that are, uh, emotive in some way you know they know that the work we're going to do is going to be emotional and they they're ready for change they've had enough um i i, I think I, there's only one person i can think of that i really struggled with and I, I didn't work with too many children i have had some but this one kid sweet kid but he was bouncing off the walls and if if a person is, if you cannot get their attention, then they're not going to hear what you're saying and they're going to struggle. I'm not it's saying right. that's you. Uh, I'm, I'm saying also that there are people that are very analytical. And if you're so busy thinking about the process, then you're not experiencing the process. And then there are people that just push back. <laughs> I might have been one of those that push back a little bit. But this is not about me. I do want to ask you, you know, sticking to terms of hypnotherapy, I imagine to do it to somebody, you have to build up that trust. Absolutely. Yeah, particularly since I'm dealing with clients that have had abuse for so many, many years. 
in in recent months now, I've been working with some some other people that have not come from that background, but they have still had things in the past that held them back, and they didn't realize it until we went there to look at it. And just give me a broad broad idea of how many times do you have to talk to where you get their trust and how long would a hypnotherapy session last? Or is it an ongoing thing where you do every, every time you see a person? Well, no, I, I, I generally spend time talking to them ahead of time, either by email or by phone. Uh, I, I want them to trust me. And sometimes they'll come in with one foot of trust in and one foot out. And I, I tell them, that if you want success in this, one, you have to want to be hypnotized. Two, you need to be part of the process. Expect success because we attract the things we think about. If you go in thinking this is not going to work for me, then it won't. <laughs> uh, but what I do in my very first session is I start working with them, start building their confidence. There are a few behind the scenes tests that I might do that they don't really realize, realize or test until, you know, I emerge them and I say, Hey, you know, remember when I told you that you weren't going to be able to open your eyes and they're like, that was crazy. I couldn't open my eyes to save my life. You know? <laughs> well, the idea was to show them that they were successful at that thing. Interesting. So many times they have been told, we have all been told that we're not successful. I grew up in that environment. It was a horrendous, violent place where I grew up. And that's all I was told was, you're not going to be worth anything. You're not going to make it. Well, you have to decide that you don't control who I am, so I'm going to go on my own way anyway. And the world the way it is today, unkindness seems to be the flag that people love to wear. And uh, that's problematic. <laughs> it's very problematic. Uh, speaking of your early days growing up, where did you grow up? Well, I was born in, in Maine. Um, although for the first 11 years, I was told that I was born in Connecticut. There's a weird, whole weird story about that. Uh, my parents, I found out when I was 11, was actually my grandparents, and my weird sister was actually my mother. Uh, wow. And I cover all that in my latest book, Covered from Above, uh, A Shield from Injury to Death. There were actually 15 times I could have been killed or injured. Um, but I grew up in San Diego. Ironically, in San Diego, I joined the Navy to get away from San Diego. So I got stationed in San Diego. <laughs> but it was good. It was good. Do you have a relationship with your any relationship with your, your family, your, you said you grew up, your grandmother or whoever? No, your... they're all gone now. Um, so it's my wife and me, and I've got a daughter and three grandkids, and you, you hang on to what you got. That is also good advice. <laughs> Speaking of hanging on, I mean, and, you know, the topic really is resiliency. Obviously, you had a very traumatic childhood, mm -hmm. tough career. Now you're doing coaching. What is it that you do that you think helps you to be resilient or able to 
handle two strokes and everything that you've been through? Uh, me personally? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, since the stroke, and that was kind of a weird environment, and, and I've been doing this even before. I've been working out and doing things, but I've been so, I was so busy being busy that I wasn't consistent. Uh, since the stroke, when I couldn't speak, uh, and I lost my whole left side and they told me I had less than an hour left to live, I was like, yeah, this isn't going to work for me. So, <laughs> uh, once I got out, uh, spent, I stayed home for a couple of weeks reading one, a chapter out of one of my books out loud and recording it until I could get my voice back. Sometimes you just got to dig in and fail a lot until you get it right. Uh, and uh, then I started going to the gym, and that's what I do regularly, uh, uh, three, four times a week. I spend time in meditation. I write every day. I'm currently working on, I'm just 122 pages into one book. I've got a draft of another. I'm doing articles, just did the 11-part procrastination series and I've just started a resilience series. So I write every day and uh, a lot of that is one for cognitive health to keep me going. And secondly, uh, you know, my wife and I have been married 44 years going on 45 and um, I want to stay around for her. So uh, I'm working on doing the things healthy to stay healthy stay hydrated, which most of us don't do, uh, get as much rest as we should have, eat well. Those are the things that I do. It's becoming a habit. It's a good habit. It's also very hard to change habits. And, you know, we've talked about procrastination. Some advice for people to get over that, because that is a habit, don't you think? Well, it is. It is. Uh, you know, just yesterday I was talking with a, a client of mine who uh, wants to transition into writing and speaking, and she's very skilled. She, she, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that she can do anything she wants to do. But she told me, she said, you know, I'm having a hard time getting started. And I, I told her, I said, well, this is what you want. You want to become a writer, but in order to become a writer, you need to get started. So to get started, what you should start doing is every day start writing something. Uh, whether it's five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, start getting in that habit of writing. And whether it's writing or anything else, if you know what you want and you're not there, then Identify some things that can help you get there and start doing them. And then don't if you're you think, stuck, come see me. <laughs> sorry about that. Sorry to interrupt. But yeah. don't you think, Tony, that people don't move forward because uh, fear is keeping them back? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what I was saying earlier about we have these underlying things that hold us back. Um, this This one client of mine didn't realize that there were things that we're fearful way back when. Uh, what, what I do in my second session is we go back to their first fear. And oftentimes 
we go three, four, sometimes five times back, but we find that first fear. And then it's kind of an odd process because in a sense, I'm splitting them now into two people. We have the grown up adult who's lived life and then the little one back there. And I'm not telling that little one how to change. I'm letting the grown up do that. And so that way the grown up is smart enough to know what a little one could do differently or what they could believe or not believe. And so they're coaching the little one. It's, it's a crazy process, but it works every time. And at the end of that session, I didn't do the work. They did the work and they know that they were part of the process, but I'm telling you, I've taken people all the way back to places I never thought that we'd ever go. There was this one guy that I worked with many years ago who was afraid of uh, winter for whatever reason. If it snowed outside, he just became fearful. Mm. And uh, so we went back in time. And it turned out that three days after he was born... That's where we went. He was in an, in an old car long before cell phones, heading down a country road in Kansas somewhere in a snowstorm. And the car went off the road and they were stuck. And there was his mother and father and aunt, I think it was, in the car. And they were all, you know, the two women were crying and the father was all upset and they were just talking about, oh, the baby's going to die. Well, the baby picked that up. Wow. And fortunately, somebody came along with a truck and pulled him out. Uh, but by coaching himself to say, you know, this is a natural thing. This was okay. It makes sense to be afraid, but it doesn't have to, you don't have to own it. And I wasn't saying that. That was him telling himself that. Now his life is going along pretty well. Well, as someone who's been in therapy and back in therapy, I can totally relate. Because my therapist is always saying, talk to your inner child. Tell mm -hmm. him it's okay. So what would you say to your younger self now? Well, you know, I'm one of those people that has beaten myself up like a lot of us do. Uh, because one of the things that prevents us from being resilient is needing to be perfect all the time. It's also one of those things that is a procrastination seed. So everything I had to do was kind of be perfect, but I guess, you know, rumor has it, I'm getting older. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think now uh, with age and experience and particularly after this experience I had after the stroke, I came to the point where I said, you know, no one can take away the good you've ever done. I love that and, quote. Huh, it's true. I mean, you've done a lot of good things. We've all kind of hosted up too, you know, but we've done a lot of good things, but no one can take that away from you, nor can they define who you are. They can call you names, but you, you can just as easily turn your back and get away from those people. But in society, we name everything, <laughs> particularly mental health. And yeah. people name, you know, I have ADHD. Mm -hmm. um, it is a part of me. 
But how do we get away from, I guess, the negativity that comes along with naming? Oh, that's a really good question, you know. Uh, and there are names for everything. You read the DSM-5 and there's, golly, there's a diagnosis for all sorts of odd things. Um, I, w I would say focus on what you're doing well. Um, you know, I was told for years that I had Tourette's. Uh, I don't know that that's true. I do have a blink, but after the third attempt to kill me, to kill me when I was a child and during a suffocation attempt, that's when the blink came. Wow. And, uh, and a doctor said, well, that was an oxygen loss. So mm. do I have to take ownership of that? No. It's, it certainly has defined the way people saw me in my life, you know, but there again, I, I've chosen to be as successful as I can. In the Coast Guard, I was a sailor of the year. I was in a federal position. I was a federal employee of the year. I mean, this isn't all about, hey, look how wonderful I am. I'm just saying that, you know, you have to commit to being the best you can. And on the days when you beat yourself up or somebody says you have something, that still doesn't define you. You said in our pre-interview that too many people spend their lives supporting someone else's priorities without taking time for themselves or their family. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think uh, I've seen this a lot with my clients where they've been in really hostile environments. And I've seen people that I worked with and towards right before I retired, I was seeing some of that myself. But uh, there are many places and there are so many relationships where you'll be stuck with someone who feels that you need to check with them before you live your life. <laughs> That's not true. Uh, you know, whether it's a work environment where I want more, I want more, I want more. It's kind of like the Moses story, go make more bricks, but get your own straw. Uh, it becomes an un unreasonable and unreachable thing. And so you're so busy now trying to help someone else or answer to someone else's call that you forget to rest, to eat well, to hydrate, to exercise, to meditate, to just stop and breathe. You know, you're, you're so busy answering to everybody else that you're planting all of the seeds that's going to cause you fear and that will lead into procrastination and lack of resilience and break your self-confidence. So, so we just have a few more minutes left. So I wanted to ask you about your national survey called the resolving the workplace. Mm -hmm. Can you share how you got started with that? Where it is at? Yeah. Uh, I have a number of websites, but this one here, it's is listed at leadership dash matters.org. Uh, and that's at the Center for Personal Leadership and Development. That's the name of my company. Under that, I have healing hypnosis and other things that I do. But on that website, there is a link there called the Resolving the Workplace Project. And this originated not so much from uh, some unkindness that I've seen where I 
recently retired from, although I think some of the things that I've seen would fit in this pretty well. Basically, the purpose of this whole survey is to identify areas within as many employment sectors as I possibly can where management needs to have improvements and then find solutions. We, we, we seem to be in a, in a world now where poor managers love to call themselves the leadership. I tend to refer to them as the bleedership <laughs> <laughs> because they're not really lifting people up. They're beating them down. Not in all cases. There's some great companies out there. There's, they're great organizations, and they should be the models to look at. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking for inputs, and this is a totally anonymous survey, uh, and it covers a large sector of employment from agricultural to banking, construction, education, healthcare. It goes on, and I'm starting to get some good, good inputs. And there are a couple of main questions that I ask in here. One, describe management failures or weaknesses at your organizations. And then, you know, being a person who may have lived in that spot, whether it's me or you or any of anyone else who's been in that type of place, we generally internally know what would be better. So the next question would be describe possible solutions to improve your organizations. And there are times in organizations where things go well. So then I ask, describe successes by management in your organizations. Those are the things we need to capture. And what would you recommend to build on those successes? Ultimately, the idea when this is all done, all the data comes in and compiled I want to start working on another book, not so much to complain about uh, toxic organizations, and we, we can do that easily. I, I want to call those areas out, but find solutions. Well, it sounds fascinating, and it sounds like a very worthwhile project, and I wish you all the best with it and with your coaching business as well. Uh, just remind people of the website where they can go to find you if they would like to talk to you personally. Okay. Uh, there are a number of them here. There's the one I just gave you here for the Center for Personal Leadership. There is a contact button there for me. That's leadership-matters.org. Then I have healing-hypnosis.make uh, sure I know it myself. Yeah, .org. And that's actually a good site with resources in case you're unsure of this whole hypnosis thing. And then there's my personal site, Anthony M. M is in Michael. Anthony M. Davis.com. Tony, thank you so much for taking the time out, especially when you weren't feeling too well. Appreciate you pushing through and sharing your area of expertise with our listeners. Thank and you so much.